All right, greetings, everyone. It's good to see you. Whether you're joining us here in person or online, we're glad that you're here. And if you got a Bible, I want you to grab it and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew and the ninth chapter. Let me hear your pages turning to the Gospel of Matthew and the ninth chapter. And uh, we're going to share one final message in this series called Criticizing Jesus. But before we do that, before we look at our text in Matthew chapter 9, uh, let's just talk about criticism for just a moment. I'm sure that's something that all of us are familiar with, at least on some level, maybe some more than others. For the sake of simplicity, there are basically two kinds of criticism. There's constructive criticism, and then there is destructive criticism. Now, constructive criticism, and it may take a while before you recognize this. You have to have some maturity in your life, but constructive criticism can really be a beneficial thing to all of us because it can give us some new insight and new perspective into what we're doing. It can motivate us to be more successful. It can build a bond of trust between us and whoever it is that's offering the criticism. And so it's not a bad thing. Destructive criticism, on the other hand, is completely different because it offers no benefit at all. It's not intended to help someone. It's not intended to promote anything that anyone is doing. It's intended to accuse and to insult and to harm. And I hope that you see as you read through the Gospels, and I hope it's become more evident to you uh, through the course of this series so far, that this was the kind of criticism that Jesus received over and over and over again during his vocational ministry from his chief enemies who were the religious leaders, primarily the Pharisees. And as I said earlier, we're going to look at that one final time uh, today as we look at a story, a familiar story, from the Gospel of Matthew in the ninth chapter. And so if you've got your Bible open there and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. Our text is not long, and as I mentioned, it's one that's probably familiar to many of us. It's Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, and it is just simply the calling of a disciple named Matthew. You follow along as I read. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees, there they are, saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask for God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Right from the beginning, I want to make sure that all of us, even I might say especially those of us who are very familiar with this story, I want us all to understand how important this passage is. Because this isn't just another story in the Gospels. It's not just another familiar story from the life of Jesus. This is a passage of Scripture that literally contains one of the most dramatic and comprehensive statements Jesus ever made because it gives us the fundamental reason why he came into this world. And we see that in the very last part of Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13 when Jesus says, For I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. I want you to think about that statement for a moment. We got it up on the screen so you can see it. In fact, read it with me. Let me hear your voices. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. How would you put those words into your own words? 
What would you write? What would you say if that was your assignment? Take that statement from Jesus and put them, and put it rather, in your own words. Well, let me tell you what comes to my mind. And I'm going to tell you in advance that I know this is going to sound harsh, but I want you to bear with me. I would say it like this. I have come for bad people, not for good. And again, I'll tell you, I'll be the first one to say, wow, that sounds harsh. But in my mind, I think it needs to sound a little harsh because this is something that a lot of people are confused about. And I say that because the world seems to be filled with a lot of people who believe that religion is for good people. But it's not. The truth is, it's for bad people. And again, I know that word sounds harsh. It's for bad people who are willing to admit just how bad They are because Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners who know they are sinners. That's why he had so much conflict with the Pharisees because they never saw themselves that way. They never thought for even a second that they needed Jesus because as far as they were concerned, they were completely right and righteous in every part of their lives. There was a man in my church in Oklahoma that I became friends with almost from the moment I met him. Have you ever had that experience? You meet someone and you just know in that moment that you're going to click. You just know in that moment you have so many things in common and you have so, you share so many of the same perspectives that you're just going to be friends. And that's the way it was for us. And we used to, we used to spend time together having lunch. We used to play golf together. We used to just enjoy being together, but we had one problem. And the one problem was he got upset anytime I would stand up like I'm doing now and preach about the truth that we're all sinners. That just rubbed him the wrong way. So much so that it affected our friendship. In fact, it basically ended our friendship for all practical intents and purposes. But can we admit together that while people People just like you and me, while we can have some great qualities in our lives and we can do some incredibly good things in our lives and through our lives, the Bible still says that we are all sinners. That's the reality of God's word. And that's something that all of us needs to understand. You just heard on M- uh, MPTV that next month we're going to do a message series called Ask Me Anything. Next week, I'm going to preach a message about prayer. I hope you'll be here. I know it's Memorial Day weekend. I know that has an extra special meaning in Indiana, but I hope you'll be here. Um, And then after that, for the month of June, we're going to preach a series called Ask Me Anything. And you can go to our website and you can submit a question, any question that you have. Now, I've already read all the questions that have been submitted. And I got to tell you that I could have told you in advance before anybody ever submitted a question, I could have told you in advance what one question would be, and I would have told you that it would have been asked over and over again by multiple people, and I would be right. And that question would be something like this. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And i got to tell you, friends, I understand that question completely. I do. Because I've been asked that question so many times, some form of that question so many times over the years that I wouldn't even be able to venture a guess how many times it's been asked. 
But from a purely biblical perspective, I want you to think about something with me. From a purely biblical perspective, is there really any such thing as a good person? Why do bad things happen to good people? But are there any really genuinely from a biblical perspective good people when the Bible says that we are all sinners? The Apostle Paul who wrote over the half of the New Testament understood the reality of sin. And that's why he wrote these words in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. You can see them on the screen. He said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now note what he says next. Of whom I am what? The worst. The worst. With all the good that the apostle Paul accomplished after his conversion, he writes and says that he is the worst of all sinners. And this is what we have to understand because according to Jesus' own words, he came into the world to, a, to save sinners. But that can only happen when you admit you're a sinner. I came across a great quote this last week when I was putting this message together. It came from a man named Julius I guess his name is pronounced as Schneiwind or something like that, some form of that. He's a German theologian, and he makes the quote about uh, the reality of conversion, or it's a quote, rather, where he defines the reality of what conversion is. And when I say conversion, I mean conversion to Christ, becoming a Christian. And this is his quote. He says, this then is conversion, to accept the death sentence and then the acquittal of God. That's what it means to be genuinely converted. To accept the death sentence... And then the acquittal of God. And can I tell you that when I first read that quote, that almost immediately a verse of Scripture came to my mind. You know what it was? It was Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Anybody know that verse? That's where the apostle Paul writes and says, For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so... He said, this then is conversion to accept the death sentence for the wages of sin is death. That's what all of us deserve on our own. He goes on to say, and then the acquittal of God. And Paul says, but the gift of God, even though we deserve death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, no matter how many times we've heard this, we need to embrace it and understand it for the depth of its meaning. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, I could talk about that for a long time. At the risk of losing some of your friendship, I guess, I could talk about that for a long time. But let's turn our attention to our text. Now, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, which is the passage right before the one that we read together just a, a moment ago, Jesus is teaching in a house. And you'll remember this story because his teaching in this house culminates with him doing this incredible supernatural miracle where he heals a paralytic man who has been brought to him by other men carrying him on a mat. You remember that story? You find this story in Mark chapter 2. You find it in Luke chapter 5. You find it here in Matthew chapter 9. And we know from Mark and Luke's account that after Jesus finished teaching, he leaves the house and he walks along the shore of the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee along with his disciples and along with this incredible crowd that continues to follow him because even though his teaching in that house is over, they are so fascinated with him that they can't bring themselves to leave. They want to see what happens next. And that brings us to our text. 
And Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9 says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, a couple of things real quick. A couple of things. It's not really the outline. I've got three things I want to share with you toward the end of this message, but a couple of things real quick. First, as I said, this story is also found in Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 5. Now, if you were to go home and read those, those versions of this story after service today, you would find that in those stories, in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, the man sitting at the tax collector's booth is called Levi. But in Matthew's gospel, it's Matthew. How do we understand that? Well, it wasn't uncommon in Jesus' day for a man to have two names. In fact, you can read about that multiple times in the Bible of some man having two different names. And the explanation might be as simple as this man's name was Levi, but once he met Jesus and he became a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, Jesus changed his name to Matthew. So when he wrote his gospel, he used the name Matthew, which, by the way, means gift of Jehovah. That sounds way better to me than Levi. I don't know about you. Matthew, gift of Jehovah. But the bottom line is that Levi and Matthew are the same person. And when Jesus sees him sitting at the tax collector's booth, he just says two words, follow me. And that's what Matthew does. Here's the second thing, and we're going to talk about this for a few minutes. I really believe in my heart that Matthew immediately got up and followed Jesus because Matthew knew better than anyone else that he was a sinner. And here's how I think we can know that that's true. When the Romans moved into Palestine and began to exact taxes from the Jewish people, they allowed people the opportunity to buy tax franchises that gave them the right to collect taxes in different cities and different districts under the full authority and the protection of the Roman government. And so when Matthew, who was a Jewish man, bought into this Roman system of collecting taxes, he made himself a traitor to his people. If you've been in church any length of time, you've always heard this truth about men like Matthew who were tax collectors. They made themselves traitors to their people because now they had the authority to collect the amount of tax that the Roman government required, but along with that, or in addition to that, they could collect however much more they wanted to line their own pockets and create their own wealth. And and so there was a lot of abuse that was going on in the collecting taxes business. It was basically legalized extortion. And Matthew would have known how hated and despised he was by his fellow countrymen when he became a tax collector. And if you were a tax collector in Jesus' day, if you were a Jewish man who bought a tax franchise from the Roman government so you could collect taxes from your countrymen and get wealthy in the process, then this was the consequence. Number one, you were barred from the synagogue. It would be like me telling you after service, you're never allowed to come back in this church again. What you've done is so egregious and so shocking and so wrong that you are never allowed to darken the door of this church again. And if we see your face, we're going to have our police that are here on the weekends to escort you off the property. Number two, you are barred from any interaction with religious people. You see our church people outside of this building, outside of Sunday, don't even bother talking to them because they're not going to talk to you. Number three, you will never be allowed to be a witness in a court of law because you've you've demonstrated to us in a clear way that you're not trustworthy. Number four, You're going to be put in the same category as robbers and murderers. Number five, you're going to go on a list 
that even includes, includes unclean animal like swine, animals rather like swine. This was the result of the consequence of Matthew becoming a tax collector. Trust me, he knew he was a sinner. But it gets even worse. In Jesus' day, in Matthew's day, there were actually two kinds of tax collectors, and I'll try to keep this short. The first was like a general tax collector, and he had the responsibility of collecting three fundamental taxes. Number one, there was a land tax. It would be like the property tax that you and I pay, and I'm starting to think that Matthew might be my tax collector when it comes to my property tax. I don't know about you. That's a whole other thing to talk about. Number two, the basic income tax, like we all pay. And number three, in in, uh, this day and age, something that was called a poll tax, which was kind of like a registration tax. And so if you were a general tax collector, you were just responsible for those three things, the property tax, the income tax, and the poll tax. Now, there was a a name or a title that was given to general tax collectors in Jesus' day, and it was the name Gabai. I think we're going to put that on the screen, Gabai. You spell it G-A-B-B-A-I. Maybe we're not going to put it on the screen. But you were called, if you were a general tax collector, your name was a Gabai. And I think that's kind of funny because you think about it, you could be a tax collector in Jesus' name and your title was a Gabai as in when you talk to people, just say goodbye to your money, right? <laughs> that's what comes through my mind anyway. So he would collect those, those general taxes and then he would collect extra to line his own pockets. The second kind of tax collector in Jesus' day was somebody who pretty much collected taxes on everything else. And friends, I mean literally everything else. And this was a tax collector who basically just invented taxes, made them up. He could collect taxes on roads, on bridges, on harbors, on imports, on exports, on wagons, on axles, on the number of wheels on your wagon, on donkeys and other animals. And I could go on and on and on. I could give you much more detail, but I think you get the picture. They just collected taxes on anything they wanted, on your coming and your going, anytime, anywhere. They also had a name. They were called Mokesh, M-O-K-E or excuse me, M-O-K-H-E-S is the way it's rendered in English, but it's pronounced Mokesh. And of the two types of tax collectors, the Gabai and the Mokesh, it was the Mokesh who were the most hated and the most despised because they didn't collect fixed taxes. Again, they t- collected taxes on anything they wanted, and they were backed by the full power and the full authority of the Roman government. I read this week, and this shouldn't surprise any of us, that oftentimes a criminal element found its way into the Makesh tax collecting because they just placed an incredible burden on everyone, especially the most vulnerable people, and that's the poorest people. One more thing. There were two different kinds of Mokesh when it came to collecting taxes. There was a great Mokesh and a little Mokesh. You know what the difference was? The great Mokesh was someone who had enough money to hire a person to collect the taxes, to hire a person to sit in the tax collector's booth and collect the taxes, and then also experience all of the, all of the anger and the hatred and the scorn that came as a result of what they're doing. The little Makesh were the ones who didn't have that kind of wealth, and so they had to collect the tax themselves. What kind of tax collector do you think Matthew was? He was a little Makesh. He was the guy who sat in the tax collector's booth 
at the side of the road or at the intersection or at the port, wherever it might be, day after day after day, collecting taxes, unfair taxes, placing an unfair burden on people for whatever he wanted. And we know that's the kind of tax collector Matthew was because the very first verse of our text, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9 says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Remember, Jesus was just walking, and there he was out in the open, Matthew, at his tax collector's booth, probably on the side of a road, ready to text any person, any wagon, any anything that passed by. And because Matthew was a little Mokesh, because that's the kind of tax collector he was, here's what I want you to understand. From a practical standpoint, he was probably viewed as the worst and the most hated man in that city or that area or that region. No one would have been despised more than Matthew. And what's worse for Matthew is that he had absolutely no hope when it came to his spiritual life. Because in those days, the rabbis used to say that repentance was impossible for a mokesh. In other words, as far as the rabbis who were concerned, and these rabbis played such an integral role in the religious life of the Jewish people. And as far as they were concerned, there was one sinner who could never, ever be forgiven. And in this area, that guy's name was Matthew. Until one day, the most amazing thing happened. And a man named Jesus, a rabbi unlike any other rabbi before him, a man who had gained so much popularity and so much notoriety that literally, we know this from the Gospels, thousands of people followed him. Walked up to that tax collector booth one day and he looked at Matthew and he said, follow me. And that's what Matthew did. Can you just, can't you almost just hear the gasps of the people that were around now, let's pause at this point in the story, and let's make an assumption together. And I think it's an educated assumption. I think it's a safe assumption. I don't think there's anything wild or outlandish about it at all. And the assumption would be that this wasn't the first time Matthew had ever had an experience with Jesus. I really believe when Jesus approached Matthew, Matthew was already under conviction about the sinfulness of his life, especially in the presence of Jesus, because Jesus has ministered all throughout this area, and there was no one who didn't know who he was, no one. That's evidenced by the crowds that followed him. They had heard him teach. They had seen him do signs, wonders, and miracles, and they had even heard him pronounce the forgiveness of sin to people who were a long way from God. In fact, Jesus had just done that in that house with that paralytic. He just said, your sins are forgiven. And I guarantee you, Matthew knew all of that 
just like everyone else in that area, knew all of that. And I think when Jesus walked up to him and he said, follow me, Matthew was under conviction because don't you know that more than anything else in the world, more than anything else in the world, he wanted to receive the forgiveness of his sins. But he was living under a religious system that told him that could never happen. He was living under a religious system that offered him no hope at all, none, zero. And so when Jesus said, follow me, think about it like this. When Jesus said, follow me, he offered Matthew the one thing that he thought he would never get. And as a result, he got up and he followed Jesus. You know, when you read this story in Luke's gospel, again, Luke identifies this tax collector as Levi, but we know that Levi and Matthew were the same person. But when you read this story in Luke's gospel, Luke adds one thing that Matthew doesn't add in his account, his personal account. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 28, we're told that after Jesus said, follow me to Matthew or to Levi, this is how it reads in Luke's gospel, Levi got up, left everything and followed him, left everything. Matthew doesn't say that because I'm sure when Matthew wrote this down, he was far too humble to point that out. He didn't think he should brag about following Jesus. But think about that for a moment. You could make the case that when it came to following Jesus, when you just think about the disciples, the original disciples, you could make the case, the ones who followed Jesus first, You can make the case that Matthew paid a much higher price to follow Jesus than anyone else did. I mean, you can think about Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and they left everything to follow Jesus. What were they? They were fishermen, right? But they left it all behind to go and follow Jesus. But here's the thing. Because they were fishermen, if they ever decided one day that they weren't going to follow Jesus any longer, what could they do? They could go right back to fishing, right? No problem. But Matthew is never going to be able to go back to being a tax collector. When it says he left everything, he left everything. I guarantee you that the next day there was somebody new sitting in that tax collector's booth by the side of the road. He could never go back. And so we need to pause. No matter how familiar we might be with this story, we need to pause and appreciate how dramatic a moment this was, how dramatic a moment this was for Matthew. Matthew, who had wealth, Matthew, who had security, Matthew, who had the protection of the Roman government, but didn't have any hope and didn't have any peace until Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. And that's why when he heard those words, he was up and gone. You know, I have told you the story before. It's been a while since I think I've talked about it, but I've told you the story before about how my grandmother on my mother's side was the spiritual matriarch of our family, the first person to ever become a Christian, the first person in our family to ever choose to follow Christ. And you may not remember, but I told you that happened as a result of a dramatic experience she had in her life where she was in a car accident and her 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 pelvis and her legs were crushed from the waist down and she was in these, these, uh, these I, I know what they look like because they used to hang in the garage of their home, these thick metal or these heavy metal and thick leather braces that she would wear from her waist down. 
my grandmother had lived a terribly sinful life. She and my grandfather owned a bar on the west side of Tulsa, Oklahoma. She was married to my grandfather because she had an extramarital affair with him. He was a married man with an entire family, and he left his entire family to marry my grandmother, abandoned his family, and started a new one with her. They had my mother, and then 12 years later, they had uh, my uncle, who was just retired as a pastor, being a pastor for about 45, 50 years, lives in Oklahoma City. And when my mother was young, she got pregnant in high school. And her, the, 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 the young man that uh, was her boyfriend had gone off to college, and she let him know she was pregnant. And he came home, left college, came home and married her. They had my older sister, Candy, and, and he got a job, and they started building a family together. But my grandmother met some man who came into the bar, and she thought that this would be a better husband for my mother. My mother left that husband who left everything for her and married this guy. And he was my biological father and my brother Carrie's biological father. And he was an alcoholic and abusive man in every way that you can imagine. She lived a sinful life. Well, she was lying in a hospital bed after that Accident, and some men from a local church came and told her that God loved her and that Jesus died for her. And you know what? Just like Matthew, she couldn't get up and follow at the moment. But just like Matthew, just like Matthew, she followed Jesus without any hesitation, without any reservation. You know why? Because those men from that local church offered her the one thing that she thought she could never have because of the life she had lived. Forgiveness. My grandmother used to love to read the writings of a woman named Amy Carmichael. You have to be a little bit older to recognize who that is. Not a contemporary illustration in any way, shape, or form. But in the house that they lived in, they had, I wouldn't call it a closet. There was kind of a nook in their house where there were some bookshelves, and she would keep all of her books. And I used to go in there, and I was that kid who wanted to find out what everything was. And here was a poem from Amy Carmichael that was her favorite. It's so simple. And it's based on Matthew's experience with Jesus. It just says, I heard him call, I heard him call come follow, that was all. My gold grew dim, my heart went after him. I rose and followed, that was all. Would you not follow if you heard that call? She wrote that about Matthew but I'm sure when my grandmother read it, she thought about how it applied to her. See, that's what Jesus does. He offers sinful people like you and me the one thing that we need the most, the one thing that so many people think they could never have, and that's forgiveness. That's a second chance a new beginning. And that's just one of the reasons why we love him. Well, Matthew was so overwhelmed with what Jesus did that he threw a dinner party. Matthew 9, 10 says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And don't we love this? Because Matthew's first thought after following Jesus was, I need to share this with all my friends. And so he invited them all over for dinner. Jesus is the honored guest. He was in a home filled with the most wretched, vile, hated 
people in Capernaum. That's where he was. In fact, if you look back at verse 10, I don't know if you still have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 9. But if you look back at verse 10, it says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, in quotations, came and ate with him and the disciples. That word sinners, in quotation marks, in the original language of the New Testament is the Greek word hamartolos. And listen to the definition. Someone who is devoted to sin. Someone who is preeminently wicked. Someone who would not even touch the law of God or the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, if we were to put that last part into modern terms, it would be someone who would never even darken the door of a local church. That's who Jesus was having dinner with. And what happened next? Criticism. From his arch enemies, the Pharisees, in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I can't even find the words to tell you how shocking this was to the Pharisees, but the answer is clear. Jesus is having dinner with sinners because Jesus came to save sinners. It's not complicated. Ultimately, that got back to Jesus. Their criticism got back to Jesus. And this is, he, he responded in three ways. You might want to write these down. And this is not original with me. These are, this, is, this, is, uh, this is the way MacArthur John MacArthur describes it in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. First of all, he says Jesus replied with human logic, Matthew 9, 12. It's not the healthy you need a doctor but the sick. No explanation required there. Just like a doctor can be expected to spend his time with sick people, a forgiving God is going to spend his time with sinful people who need forgiveness. Then, then he answered with Scripture. That's number two. In Matthew 13, the first part of the verse, he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Two things. First, he used the Pharisees' own words against them because one of the most fundamental and comic, or not comic, but common phrases used in rabbinic writing was that phrase, go and learn. He said, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And those words, go and learn, were always used as a rebuke to those who didn't know what they should have known. And so... That wouldn't have been lost on the Pharisees. When Jesus said, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, they knew that he was, he was dissing them pretty good. <laughs> Second, those words come from the Old Testament book of Hosea. I don't know if you know the theme of the book of Hosea, but it's about the love and the grace of God, the mercy of God. the mercy of God for sin, for repeated sin over and over and over again. And we don't have time to talk about it in detail, but the simplest explanation on a practical level for us when it comes to those words, I desire mercy and sacrifice, is that God wants us to be merciful and forgiving, not judgmental and condemning. And that hasn't changed about God today. And then Jesus gave them an answer of authority. Matthew 9, 13, the latter part of the verse, he says, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the bottom line was the Pharisees believed that they were righteous. And so they didn't see themselves as sinners. That's why they never could connect with Jesus. And, but Jesus was in the world under the authority of God the Father to live out the divine plan of God the Father. And the divine plan of God the Father was to save sinners. That's what it was. It was that simple. So what do we learn from the criticism 
the Pharisees' criticism of Jesus in this story. I got four things I wrote down, and we're just going to be real brief. Jesus is inclusive, and sometimes his inclusion is shocking. And with everything I've said about tax collectors and sinners, there's no way that I've come even close to scratching the surface, the surface of how deeply hated and despised these men were, how vile and wicked they were on a practical level. And yet Jesus is having dinner with them. Number two, no one can be saved until they admit they're lost. No one. Not even you. Number three, regardless of what someone may look like on the outside, their life may be filled with emptiness and regret. Matthew's was. And number four, and this is the most important on a practical level in terms of a truth to take with us. Genuine followers of Christ must lead with mercy when it comes to people. All people. All people. Jesus quoted Hosea 6 and verse 6 toward the end of our story where he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He can go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, when we read that in Matthew's gospel, what Jesus was doing is, is he was quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was something called the Septuagint. That's what he typically did. But if you're to look at that in the Old Testament, Hosea 6 and verse 6, in the Old Testament, which was written in the Hebrew language, the word that is used there for mercy is the Hebrew word hesed. And it was an expression of deep graciousness. And that's how we are to interact with people. I don't know about you, but I fall short of this so far, so often. The deep graciousness that God wants us to, God wants us to extend and manifest to people in our lives. But the Pharisees, they weren't in the mercy business. Their strategy for motivating people to live right before God was to set the standard very high and live up, live up to it themselves and then expect everyone to follow along. But the problem was they looked down in judgment on everyone who, for whatever reason, couldn't live up to that pious and sanctimonious kind of life. But Jesus, on the other hand, was willing to spend time with tax collectors and sinners because he came into the world to save tax collectors and sinners. Make sense? So having said that, how would each of us answer this question? When it comes to people, am I more like a Pharisee or am I more like Jesus? How are we going to answer that question? And my prayer is that there will be people in this service and every other service we have this weekend who will make a commitment to God to pursue a friendship with some tax collector or some sinner that you know. 
And I'm praying that you would invite them to church where they might have the opportunity to receive the one thing that's missing in their life, maybe even the one thing they thought was never going to be available to them. And that was the forgiveness of their sin. Phil and Trish and the band can come out and prepare. You know, last weekend, I preached a message that included a full-blown presentation of the gospel. And in every service, I stood right down here, and I said, I just, I'm going to stand down here. Don't come to me for prayer. Come to me if you recognize that you're a sinner in need of the forgiveness of your sin. And I did that Saturday night, and no one came. And I did that Sunday at 9 o'clock, and no one came. And I did that Sunday at 1045, and the song was almost over. And then a man stepped out. And he walked down the aisle. His name was Frederick. And you know what he said to me? These exact words. He said, I am a sinful man who needs forgiveness. And we baptized him, and his life was changed. But, here, but here's the deal. We need a whole lot more people like Frederick in our services. And that's not ever going to happen until you and I decide we're going to live a lot more like Jesus than we are a bunch of Pharisees. And we're going to make friends with tax collectors and sinners. I want you to pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for a chance to study these words, guide and direct our response. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Stand together with me. If you're a prayer counselor, will you come on down while we sing? While we sing, and if you, if you have something that's heavy on your heart, you want somebody to pray with you or pray for you, or listen to me close, you know somebody that's not right with God and you really long in your heart for them to receive the same kind of forgiveness and new life that Matthew experienced, maybe just come down and ask somebody to pray with you for that person that you might be able to play a role in that. But if you feel led, you come to pray as we close.